All right, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up your Bible to Romans chapter 9. We're continuing our series in Romans, Romans chapter 9. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some under the chairs, and you can grab one of those, and we'll be on page 947, page 947 in those black Bibles, Romans chapter 9. Uh, we are studying the scriptures together and been studying some hard things in Romans chapter 9, some difficult teachings Uh, But we come back to the scriptures again and again because we believe that the scriptures speak to us with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So often we wish we could uh, sit with Jesus face to face when he left the disciples. He said, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. And as we study his word by the help of the Holy Spirit, we get to hear his voice. We get to talk with Jesus. This week, we're calling it artistic freedom, artistic freedom. We're going to be looking at how God, as the ultimate artist, has freedom to make his art as he will make his art. And so we've got this difficult doctrine that we've been studying through, and there's this question that starts off our text, and the answer is basically, well, God, God's an artist. He gets to do what he wants. But there's a second answer that's also great, and that is he makes great art. Um, it's Mother's Day today, so happy Mother's Day to you mothers, and I was thinking of my dear mother this week as I was preparing this sermon, and I was remembering her as I looked at this text because it's talking about an artist shaping clay, and my mother was an art teacher, and so I grew up making all kinds of art. If y'all ever wonder why I'm kind of strange and think outside the box, you can blame my mother for that. She taught us a, a core value of creativity, but in all reality, I'm thankful for that. But she taught us to be creative. I was always drawing. I was always painting. I was always making things, uh, and used to love making things out of clay. I remember... One time even she went and we like harvested clay out of a riverbed one time for one of her sculpture classes and uh, she found this clay and it was just this wonderful, soft, you know, moldable, shapeable clay. And one of the key lessons that she taught me as an art teacher, uh, as a little child, is you don't mess with someone else's art, right? Like you're drawing your picture, they're drawing their picture, you don't get to scoot over and start drawing on their picture, Right? Like, you don't get to grab their sculpture and remake it as you want. And I think we have a similar lesson in Romans chapter 9. We're told that God is making something beautiful, and we don't really get to, as creatures, tell the God of the universe how to do his art. So it's kind of a hard answer in the sense that there's just this, hey, God is sovereign. He does what he will do. He's God. But there is the secondary answer as well of, man, what he's making is beautiful. I mean, it's it's awesome. So so let's look at the text together. I'm just going to read kind of half of it to begin with, and then we'll read more as, as we move through the morning. So starting in chapter 9, verse 19, it says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Let me pause there, uh, pray, and ask God to help us. Again, this is a hard text, because that first answer is just like, hey, you don't get to ask those kind of questions. God gets to do what he wants. Like, wow, okay, that's kind of a, a shut you up kind of, kind of answer, but there's more. Um, so let me pray, and we'll ask God to help us to understand what he's saying here. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We do receive it as a gift, even when it's hard to understand, and we pray that your spirit would meet us here. Pray that your spirit would give us hearts that are hopeful, uh, minds that are open, that you would help us to listen to you, to pay attention to what you're doing, to be in awe of, of the art that you're making. Uh, we thank you. We're hopeful because of what you've done for us in Jesus. 
because of giving us Jesus, taking our sin, giving us resurrection life. And so we pray that 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 hope would continue through our morning and that you would teach us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the the big answer, the initial answer is um, you don't really get to answer back to God. God's in charge. He's, He's the one shaping the clay. Who are you as the pot to answer back to God? And that's a hard that's a hard response. And I want to give you a little more detail, which I believe is um, context that the rest of Romans has given us. Some of this will be repeated concepts from where we were a couple of weeks ago. But remember, the rest of Romans gives us some context where the great injustice in, in the world is that any of us would be forgiven or saved at all. If there's going to be an injustice, it's that we are given mercy, right? And so Paul spends eight chapters in Romans explaining how That's not really unjust of God to do that because of the cross, because Jesus has rightfully paid for our sins, so therefore he can justly show us mercy. And so Paul spent a lot of energy and a lot of time over the concept of the cross, and Jesus is our substitute. God is a God who justly shows us mercy by forgiving our sins through the cross uh, with Jesus. And so as we come up to these questions again, we need to remember that some of these questions have been answered already, right? Right? Some of these, is that okay for God to do this? Or is that just? Or is that fair? Those questions have been answered and asked before. And so we need to remember that context, especially the context of Romans chapter 3, which is a parallel passage to this passage here. But I also want to read from you James, which I read a couple of weeks ago, but this is important for us to hold on to. James 1, uh, you can just write this down if you want to look it up later. But James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So as we study these difficult passages about the sovereignty of God, sovereign just means God's in charge. He's the big king. So the kingship, the control, the power of God. God is in control of all things as God we're tempted to blame our sin on him. And that's kind of what's happening here. And so the first answer in Romans is you can't blame your sin on him. And there are broader contextual answers as well. Like I said, in James, it says, God's not tempted by sin. You know where sin comes from? Where does sin come from? It comes from me. It comes from you, right? That's the answer in James. James comes from, uh, sin comes from us. We can't put that on God. And then there's a bigger kind of bigger context answer in Genesis chapter three, right? Just go back to the beginning of the Bible. Where does sin come from? Well, God puts Adam and Eve into perfection in paradise, and he says, trust me, and everything will be cool, and they say, we don't think we're going to trust you. We think you're holding out on us, and that's where sin started. We'd rather be our own gods. We'd rather disobey and do life on our own. We'd rather have the gifts of creation without the creator, and everything else has kind of gone haywire since then, right? So the two big answers, James 1 is a very small, kind of explicit, specific answer. You can't blame your sin on God, it's you. And then Genesis 3 is a bigger kind of story answer of the whole history of humanity. Yeah, it's, it's, it's humanity's fault. We are the ones to blame for our sin. So again, then the context of Romans is, so how can anybody be saved at all? How, how is it just or fair for God to save anybody? Well, the cross, that's, that's the answer. He's, he's placed our sins on on Jesus. And so then now when we come to Romans chapter 9, we need to understand that these difficult doctrines of election and predestination and choosing, these are not primary for Paul. These are buttresses supporting the great cathedral of the gospel. So there's this beautiful tower of look at what Jesus did for us. 
And then Paul spending a couple of chapters saying, and, hey, this concept of God being a choosing God and election, that supports this concept, this greater concept, this more beautiful, glorious, clear idea of God being a God who's for us, who shows us grace by taking our sins upon himself on the cross. So because of God placing our sins on Jesus and giving us Jesus' resurrection life, what that translates into in your daily life by faith, God delights in you and loves you and is pleased with you. God doesn't just forgive you and then begrudgingly adopts you into his family. God forgives you and likes you and is delighted that you're his child. He's pleased with you through Christ. So that's, that's the first eight chapters of Romans. And now in, in Romans 9, he's saying, and here's these difficult doctrines of election and choosing, and, and those are buttressing, those are supporting, those are like tent stakes, you know, making this whole grace concept stronger. So we want to make sure we don't um, run from these doctrines of election because they're here and they're important for us to understand, but we also don't want to make them central, right? We talked about that a couple of weeks as well. They're secondary, they're supporting doctrines to the central doctrine of God's grace to us in Jesus. And so he first shows us now how the artist actually works. So his first answer is the artist gets to do what he wants to. And you kind of feel like, okay, end of discussion. But he goes farther and he says, but the artist is making something beautiful. Look at what he's making, right? And so he starts to unfold this. And the first thing that he shows us is that the artist is patient. The artist is extremely patient. Any of you that have ever made anything beautiful, it's going to require some patience. Now, some of you I know are just unusually gifted and you can just like whip out something, something pretty real easy, right? But for most of us, if you're going to make anything of worth and value, there's patience and long suffering. That's the King James word for patience. It's, the Greek word is macrothumia, which is a compound word of long and suffering. So one of my favorite King James words, they nail it and they say long suffering. We use patience. I think long suffering, the old King James word is actually clearer. Not always a fan of the King James, but here they nailed it. it it's long suffering. God is long suffering with his creation as he is making something beautiful out of this mess that we have made by our sin. So let's look at verses 22 and 23. We'll see the artist's patience in 22. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That's tough, right? Okay, he sounds like he's just saying, well, what if God um, just patiently prepared some stuff for damnation, basically? And that sounds really hard. So I want to break down some of these words so we can understand that better. Because I think on a first reading, it might sound like he's saying, what if God just decided to take some sweet little babies and turn them evil for the purposes of damnation, right? That's kind of, that's kind of how that could sound. And I don't believe that's what he's saying, but I want to clarify. Um, so he's going to show his wrath, his just anger against sin. And he's also going to show his power. And he's going to do this by what? He says, enduring with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. I want to just define some of these key words because I think we can mishear, we can have kind of a connotation that's not necessarily there. So the first word is endured. First word is endured, and that's not the, the standard Greek word for endure. Um, y'all know if you've heard me preach much, I love to talk about the, the Greek word for endure. It's a, a hupomeno, and it's that kind of like stand your ground, dig in. It's a beautiful word. This is not that word. This is a different word. This is a simpler word that just literally means to carry. So you could say, what if God, in his great power and awesomeness, carries along, carries along with patience, with long-suffering, it costs him, it hurts him, he's long-suffering, he's carrying along 
the vessels of wrath, the pots that deserve judgment, that are prepared for destruction. So again, that prepare word can sound like we can think, is he saying he takes good pots and twists them and makes them evil so that he can then condemn them? No, prepared, prepared just means uh, strengthened, mended. So it's like he's holding things, he's kind of keeping the world going. In our sin, we've just, we've torn this place up. We hate each other, we fight with each other, we steal from each other, we take advantage of each other. We have just made this this world worse and worse and worse. And he's saying, what if God has shown great patience and long-suffering with the sin and the evil and the wickedness of this world? That's what he's saying. He's, He's carrying along those that will come to an end of condemnation, and he's showing more grace. There's carrying, there's... Um, there's mending, there's strengthening, there's long-suffering. So I just want you to hear those, those words and, and the clarity of what he's saying here, that God is patient and long-suffering with the evil and brokenness that we've brought into this world. Um, I, I use this picture here of someone watering plants. Um, we're not the best gardeners in the world. Uh, we have done pretty well with some flowers that were planted before we bought the house, right? And they're doing pretty well. Um, but you can water things and then not see any fruit out of them, right? You can give yourself to a plant, and you can spend yourself on it, and you can give nutrients, and you can give water, and you can carry it along, and you can be patient with it, and long-suffering, and you're giving strength, and you're mending, and it can, it can grow into something horrible. And then it just needs to be cut down and burned, right? That's not unjust, That's not God taking something sweet and beautiful and twisting it into evil. That's the sovereign God showing patience and grace even to the wicked who eventually will come to judgment. And I believe that's that's the picture of God that he's showing here. Again, even that, you know, I'm trying to make it better. Even that is hard for us, right? Because we're 21st century people and we we often don't believe in judgment at all, right? We often don't believe in judgment at all, but, but this is the picture he's showing here, not a sovereignty and a shaping of a potter that takes good things and makes them bad, but a God who comes to this lump of clay, and clay sounds all like sophisticated and beautiful, right? Clay is dirt, right? Clay is just smooth dirt. And he comes to this dirt that is sinful and wicked, and, and some he shows great patience, but, but they never repent, and they never turn from evil, and they are justly condemned. And some he, he pulls out, and he shows this great, grace and kindness. Again, the words previously were predestination and election. He shows us the special grace where people wake up to what God has done for them in Jesus. And again, we don't, we don't like the idea of God saving some and not others. That's hard for us. But recognize some of that it's hard for us just because of who we are as, as modern people. Um, but this is, this is the art that God is making. And Paul's point here, as you go to verse 23, is as he's doing this, as he's shaping patiently the clay of this world. It says it's in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So let's just admit up front, hey, we're 21st century people. We don't like the idea of God saving some and condemning others. We just don't like that. We'd just rather him not condemn any, right? Or if you're a really self-righteous person, you want him to condemn people and you just don't realize that you deserve condemnation, right? So we're either on one side of that horse or the other. We're either thinking, yeah, I'm great, but God needs to condemn everybody. Or we're just thinking, yeah, man, we just, just, we just need to forget about all of it and everybody needs to be saved. And, and just, this is the story that the artist is writing. 
This is the sculpture that the artist is making. We need to come to terms with the sculpture that he's making. So Paul's first answer is, God's the artist. He's free to do what he wants. But a second answer, don't miss the second answer, is what he's making is so beautiful and so mind-blowing that it should shake you to the core. When you see condemnation, maybe that's hard. Maybe that's difficult for you to see him justly condemning wickedness. But that should awaken you to, I deserve judgment. I deserve wickedness. And he showed me grace. He showed me mercy. He forgave me. He's doing something new in my life. And that should just, that should just blow everything for you. That should change you into someone who's no longer self-seeking, but now serves others. That's what that should do for us. That's what that should do in us. So again, first idea, remember the hardening of Pharaoh uh, a couple of weeks ago. We said as he's hardening Pharaoh, really what he's doing, he's not taking a sweet little innocent Pharaoh and making him evil. He's coming to an evil Pharaoh and actually giving more strength. The hardening of the heart, literally in Exodus, was he strengthened the heart, he gave glory to the heart, he strengthened Pharaoh. And Pharaoh receiving that patience, receiving that being carried along, receiving that preparation and that mending and that strengthening, continued to do evil, continued to turn from God. Uh, Same thing happens in our life. So what we want to make sure we understand is we can't blame God for our evil. That's our fault. We can't blame God for our evil. It's our fault. And then we also want to remember the the context, the greater context of of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 said the The great injustice, if you're going to accuse God of injustice, it's not that he condemns some and saves others, it's that he saves any at all. Eight chapters of Romans, how can God justly do this? That's really the big question that we should wrestle with, which should push us to say, God saved me. He saved me. That's amazing. He showed grace to me in Jesus. We should just be ecstatic over that and thankful for that. And then that would push us out to love others. God came after me and saved me and grabbed me and made me his child, and that should push me out to love other people. A couple of weeks ago, we showed this chart where I tried to kind of lay out some of the different um, doctrinal categories that we, we go into. And what I said is, as believers in Jesus, we want to first of all say that the center is the gospel itself. On the left and the right, I have gospel center. On the right, it says evangelical. And what we're just saying there is the gospel, evangelical means literally gospel people, the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins and gives us resurrection life. And by faith, we can, we can trust in him and be forgiven and be set free and be adopted as children of God. And that's the center that holds us together. And then when we look at these different difficult doctrines of the sovereignty of God, God being in control of all things and man's responsibility, we have to remember that the gospel is a center and gospel people hold both of those together. We say, yeah, God is in control and man is responsible. We hold those two things together and our hope in the midst of that is the gospel, is the good news of who Jesus is. And so I said, in the middle of that, we have a couple of um, systematic theologies. One is called Calvinism. A lot of us lean towards Calvinism, which emphasizes this God has chosen a, a people for himself. That if we ever have faith, it's because God opened our eyes. So that's Calvinism. It's a little bit on the line on the God is in control side, right? So those of us that are Calvinists would just say, God's control is a little clearer to me in scripture. And then, yeah, I agree, man is also responsible. And we're trying to hold that tension together. And then the Arminianism, that's the other, the other view. It's just, again, right across the line. It says, I'm just really clear that man is responsible. And then I know somehow God is in control, right? And so those two are our center beliefs. They're both center beliefs in the gospel center of saying, really, my hope is in Jesus. And then as I try to sort out these difficult doctrines of election and predestination, this, this is kind of where I fall. Um, and we want to remember that, that those 
centers, that's where we have unity. And then there are these weirder beliefs that we want to be on guard about, right? And that's what I was saying. Be on guard about hyper-Calvinism. That's the one that says, God is so in control, you don't have to share the gospel with anybody. That would be hyper-Calvinism. God chooses, God elects, so you don't have to tell anybody about Jesus. That's dangerous. That's falling off the edge of the circle there. And the other one is called open theism or hyper-Arminianism. And that's, you know what? Man is so in control that God really doesn't know the future. God, God doesn't really control those things. God's just really, really, really strong and really, really good, but he's not really in control of all things. That's falling off the end. And then the extreme versions of that is Pelagianism and fatalism. Fatalism is just like, yeah, whatever, you know, whatever fate decides, it'll happen. I don't care. I don't have to do anything, right? And then Pelagianism is, I will save myself. It's all up to me. There's no God in the picture, right? And so those are the falling outside. What we want to hold on to is the gospel center in the middle. God is in control and man is responsible. And now as we go to the next um, section, what we're going to see now is the beauty that the artist is making. What is he making? He's making something really beautiful. Look at verse 22. No, not verse 22. Wrong one. Verse 24. Verse 24. He goes on, Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So now he's quoting Hosea to show this Old Testament pattern of how God has always been making something beautiful as an artist out of sinful humanity. Have any of you ever read the, the book of Hosea? It's a prophecy book in the Old Testament, some of you have. It's a crazy story. God comes to a prophet and he says, I want you to marry this prostitute and have kids with her. And then, of course, she cheats on him and she's unfaithful. And he goes and he brings her back and he loves her again. And then she cheats on him again and she ends up getting sold into slavery. And he goes and literally buys her off the auction block. He redeems her from her slavery. She sold herself. And God says, prophet Hosea, I want you to do this because you're showing my people what my relationship to them is like. God is saying that sinful humanity, we're all a people that have sold ourselves into slavery. We've not been faithful to our kind lover who cares for us, and we've left him and sold ourselves into a life of abuse. And so in the midst of that story, which again is a mind-blowing story, God says, So because of that unfaithfulness, you're going to name the children that you have with her, not my people, and not loved. But that's who they are, and their their names are changed. He says, in that process of you redeeming, of you loving, then, then those who are not my people will be called my people. And those who are not loved will be called loved. Now, he's talking in the context of God's people, Israel, the Old Testament people, But he's speaking, Paul is here speaking to the Roman audience, which is a mixed audience of of Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians. And so he's saying this truth that God taught Israel, that Israel failed to be faithful. They, They cheated on God. They sold themselves into slavery, and God showed grace to them even when they deserved judgment. He's saying that judgment was deserved, yet they received grace. Paul is saying that can be applied to all of us, not just to Israel, but this is a principle that we see in the Old Testament, that God is is always showing grace to those who deserve mercy. 
those sinners like you and me who have abandoned God and said, like Adam and Eve, I'd rather do life on my own. I don't want to obey your rules. God shows us grace. So those of us that are not his people are made into his people. That's the beautiful thing that God is doing. Those of us that are not loved are made into those who are loved through this adoption, through his gracious mercy that he's showing to us. So he's specifically quoting Hosea. It says, Hosea, that you could look it up in Hosea 2.23, but I would encourage you to read the whole story. As I said, it's a beautiful story. And so here we have this idea of God as the master sculptor sculpting.